sudden you think they're foes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. Go pink for freedom, go pink for peace. That was Code Pink by Emma's Revolution. I am Sierra Taylor, Director of Cultural Strategy with Code Pink Women for Peace. Welcome to our Code Pink radio show presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, DC. Thank you all for joining us on this Saturday, June 19th. June 19th, or what is now known as a federal holiday, began as a celebration of the day that Major General Gordon Granger's Union troops marched to the streets of Galveston, Texas, reading General Order Number 3. The order brought news of the Emancipation Proclamation to all residents of Texas and freed the remaining enslaved Black workers in the state following the final surrender of the Confederacy in Galveston, June 2nd, 1865. Although the Emancipation Proclamation was signed 2.5 years earlier, it was not enforced in the so-called border states. In fact, Slave owners from Louisiana and Mississippi would often hide their enslaved Black workers in Texas as there was not a strong union presence and as a result of the defeat of the indigenous Mexican people in the Mexican-American War who refused because of their refusal to allow slavery to expand upon their land. Juneteenth is the oldest known celebration commemorating the end of slavery in the United States. And while it began formally celebrated primarily by people in Black communities in Texas since 1866, it has increasingly become a marker of freedom for exploited people throughout the world. In 1979, the late Representative Al Edwards of Texas authored and sponsored House Bill 1016 that made June 19th, Juneteenth, a state paid holiday in Texas. And today we have Juneteenth as an official federal holiday. During Reconstruction, Juneteenth celebrations were used as a means of organizing and political education for both formerly enslaved Black workers and poor whites living in the South. They used Juneteenth, or Jubilee Day, as a commemoration of vision for democracy in the United States out of the wreckage of racial chattel slavery and for a possibility of a new society that would put life, liberty, and the right to fare well on the table for everyone. Reconstruction was a crucial moment in the revolutionary history of the United States that brought about free public education and voter suffrage for informally enslaved Black workers and for poor white workers as well. 
Property was taken from the slave power, both in the form of the emancipation of enslaved workers and also in land redistribution for formerly enslaved black workers. And in some places, regardless of gender or even marital status. Code Pink lifts up Juneteenth to mark the point in history that the United States has been most closely aligned with its purported values of the right to life, liberty, and the right to farewell. We move forward in our struggle for peace and for a world that puts people over property. Today, we continue the struggle to end exploitation and violence in all its forms, and we join together with the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for a moral revival for the Third Reconstruction Act. Find the Third Reconstruction Act on our website, codepink.org slash third reconstruction. <clears throat> The Poor People's Campaign, a national call for a moral revival is returning to the roots of the nation's moral movement this coming Monday, June 21st, as it holds a national poor people's and low wage workers assembly in the same North Carolina location where Moral Mondays began. The assembly marks the launch of 365 days of fighting towards a mass moral in-person march on Washington in June 2022. The assembly begins 5.30 p.m. Eastern on Monday, June 21st, and will be a hybrid of an in-person and online event with people gathering at Halifax Mall, 300 North Salisbury Street, in Raleigh, North Carolina. And you can also join online at www.3rdreconstruction.org. The program will be headlined by people directly impacted by racism, poverty, and their interlocking injustices, in addition to movement, music, artists, activists, and advocates. The first Moral Monday was held in April 2013 when Reverend Barber led a group into the North Carolina General Assembly to protest the regressive legislation being rammed through by existing lawmakers. 17 people were arrested. Almost 1,000 were arrested at the end of the 2013 protest, in which historians have called it the largest sustained civil disobedience campaign at a state legislature in U.S. history. A poignant part of the assembly on Monday is a COVID memorial wall based on the campaign's online wall that contains about 700 names. People can add names of loved ones who died from COVID to the four by eight panels. As Mother Jones said, we pray for the dead and fight like hell for the living, says Sharon Rebar, Director of Cultural Resources for the Cairo Center for Religions, Right, and Social Justice. And she says that is exactly what they will be doing here in Raleigh, North Carolina, Monday, June 21st. Again, if you cannot join online or in person, please join online Monday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern at www.3rdreconstruction.org. And so we welcome you into the space and 
into this wonderful conversation with leaders Danica Katzevich and Zilla Wesley. Today, we are joined by organizers Danica Katzevich, coordinator of the Peace Collective and campaign coordinator of the Middle East team with Code Pink, and Zilla Wesley of the Cairo Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice, and an organizer with the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for a moral revival. I'm going to start us off. Uh, there's a march that's happening now with the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for a more revival that will end in uh, June 21st, Monday, June 21st in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I wanted to bring in this piece uh, with Reverend Barber talking about the um, what we're up against today. Well, you know, West Virginia has an interesting history. It actually was called West Virginia because they didn't want to be connected to uh, the Confederate racism. And there's a strong movement, labor movement there. There were big battles with the miners. My grandfather's actually from West Virginia. And it's interesting that I was called, we have a poor people's campaign um, group there, and we were called by, by white people from the mountain uh, and black people who said, we're tired of this. We're tired of Manchin saying he's representing West Virginia. In fact, 70% of West Virginians want to see the For the People Act passed. 70, 60, over 68% want to see infrastructure passed. Over 68% want living wages because there are 350,000 people in, in West Virginia that make um, less than a $15 living wage. And what they understand is that when you empower voter suppression, uh, you are also empowering people to get elected who then will stand against labor rights and will stand against living wages and will stand against health care. So people are very clear. Um, I was with one uh, lady whose name is Pam from the mountains of West Virginia. She literally said this problem with Joe Manchin, he's not representing us. And what it is, is they want us, all of us to be quiet. This is not just an attack on black people. That's what we have to get this about this voting piece and these laws. It's an attack on black people, on white people, on brown people, on disabled people, on poor people, on women and on young people. And it's really an attack on our democracy and we cannot stand for it. That that multiracial message that you're talking about clashes with some of the kind of Jim Crow rhetoric that we've been hearing from Democrats. Have you been counseling allies to try to make this a, a, a broader fight in, in reaching Manchin? Yes, and, and actually, I don't, I call it James Crow Esquire. You know, Jim Crow was strictly <laughs> a black folk, but James Crow Esquire put on a suit, got a computer, and started looking at how can they block uh, progressive folk from voting, because what you have in the extremist party called the Republican Party now, ever since 1968, is a, with the Southern strategy, is their goal was to make the Republican Party the party of the white people in the South. That's what they said. Uh, that's what Kevin Phillips said and others who advised Richard Nixon. And as they have progressed down through the years, <clears throat> they know they're in the minority. So they know they can only win if they suppress the vote. Justice in this country was never just about black, black and white. Frederick Douglass worked with William Lloyd Garrison, who was white. Harriet Sojourner Truth worked with uh, Lucretia Mott, who was a white Quaker. We, Dr. King said in 1965 that, that every time you try to expand voting rights, why there's such a battle is because the Southern aristocracy and the ruling class, they in fact are afraid of a black, white, 
coalition, particularly poor and low-wealth white people and black people who can change the economic architecture of this country. So we don't need to just talk about this in terms of race. We need to talk about the race side of it, the class side of it, the geographical side of it. We need to connect voter suppression to suppression of all the things we know need to happen in public policy. And again, that's why we call it James Crow Esquire. What is happening with this thing with Manchin is doing? He's hurting the whole country. And one of the things we try to do is make sure that we connect. There is, when people ask me, is it racism or is it classism? I say it is. It's both and. It's never either or. And we've never had movement in this country without a fusion coalition of people of all races, creeds, and colors coming together to push this nation forward. That's what we need. That's why we're going to West Virginia. Now, I'm not going to speak. I'm going to stand with the people from West Virginia who say they want to speak. I just love Reverend Barber. Uh, I think it's so important and uh, what he's doing in terms of bringing history, bringing the lessons of history into understanding the struggle that we have today and really what we're up against. Uh, and this idea of moral fusion or this unity uh, among uh, lines of historical division. And so that's why I'm really excited for the conversation that we're about to have. And I wanted to kick us off with Zilla. Can you tell us about the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for a moral revival? And why did you join? Uh, why you joined the Poor People's Campaign and, and what the work looks like today? Yes, um, thank you for that. And thank you, Sierra, for having me today. Um, so the Poor People's Campaign, we're really just trying to switch the narrative and some of the stuff that we've been conditioned with in this country and just highlight the 140 million people um, in the forgotten areas of this country and the struggling areas of this country by um, really changing the narrative and highlighting some of the things out there that are really keeping us down, like um, the war economy, ecological devastation. Um, yeah, the moral narrative again, because the Christian right is all over the place. Um, and switching the narrative is one key that we do. Why did I join is because of one, the fusion work. And also it gives you us fusion, but it also gives me the um, ability to just be unapologetically myself too as a black woman living in this colonial experience. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciated the campaign and that use of to change the narration, you have to change the narrator and really giving a platform for those who are most impacted to actually speak our truth to speak about our history, to speak about the conditions that we're living in, rather than those up high telling us, you know, what our issues are and what we need to do to solve those issues when most likely they're the ones who created, um, created them. And so uh, I think in the vein of changing the narrator, uh, Danica, can you talk about the Peace Collective, what it is, why you started it, and, and how do you think that, or, or why do you think it's so important today? Yeah, thank you for having me, Sierra. So the Peace Collective was started in January. It's essentially Code Pink's youth cohort. So everyone is like under 30. Um, they come together to learn how to organize um, 
a, a variety of different things, uh, what they're working on now. They're all so cool and awesome and smart and funny and sweet. And it's been really, really awesome, like getting to work with other people my age. I, and I started it because I noticed how uh, age stratified the peace movement was. Um, you know, there's not a ton of young people getting involved. And I know young people care about imperialism because I know they, we have to, young people, we have to recognize unsustainable ideologies and how they're interconnected, um, like imperialism and, and, and capitalism, how it all destroys our climate and our way of life. Um, but so that's why we started it. And now they're working on things like divestment. Some of them have started campaigns in their cities or states sometimes to um, divest uh, public funds from weapons manufacturers um, and oil companies, that kind of thing. Um, and right now we're also working on, uh, Congress got uh, advice to expand the select, like military selective service or the draft to include women um, which is not feminism. It's not equity. Um, what? So, Women destroying other people isn't feminism. I know, right? It's it's a uh, it's it's bonkers. But um, so we're kind of taking that and being like, uh, you know what? I think it would be feminism if we uh, abolished the draft completely and abolished uh, compulsory military service. It's so, yeah, it's so wild. And, you know, <laughs> Zilla texted me a picture earlier of uh, Amazon. Like, can you tell me, like, <laughs> that was wild. Yeah, because it's like, because um, it was matter of fact on this girl I know's LinkedIn page, and they put the Pan-African flag and the LGBTQ plus flag and the Maryland flag and the United States flag and we put it up in honor of Black Liberation and Prime Week and they're doing it all, all under the guise of Juneteenth and I'm like this is not what Juneteenth is about um, you know because even what Danica just said it's like yo we can all be in the draft but we can't all be registered to vote you know let's think about yeah. that you know it's like let's put some stuff in order and like Juneteenth is a very interesting and leveled experience for for black folks anyway in the diaspora of this united states because it was two years after the emancipation proclamation was signed like they roll into texas and it's like oh y'all y'all free just fyi you know um, so you know it's one of those things where it's it's upsetting that they already have bought like they sold out they sold it out. And also like Congress moved so fast to this, you know, like this was all done within two days and they couldn't do this for the Voting Rights Act. They couldn't do this for the anti, any type of violence bill. They, like the George Floyd Act is still out there, you know, the Tamir Rice case um, is about to close and his birthday's coming up and we should probably, like his family needs justice as well. So they have, you know, it's a federal holiday and people are off. And even with that, you know, some of these Facebook groups that uh, my friends are a part of, like some of those conversations are spicy and leading to some stuff. But it's like, this is just performative, um, not unreal 
like symbolism of freedom and liberation, if that makes sense. Because like, and it's like what Bishop Barber said, this is, you know, the laws are still in place to keep people oppressed. And like, for me, like also I'm part of the Poor People's Campaign because it's like when Black liberation is really, really experienced, all of us will be liberated. And I say that because people are going to be like, well, Zilla, that doesn't sound like fusion, but it is because the experience that we, like the divide and conquer is so real and it's been so innate in this country from the beginning. Like it's a good podcast about it called Seeing White, you know, where it like talks about from the first John Punch case where he was an indentured service, servant with um, two other guys, one was from Scotland, one was from Ireland, I remember, and um, they all ran away together. John Punch, you know, as a you know person off the continent, he got... Um, you know, life servitude to the state of Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia. And the other two got 20 years. And then to my understanding from like some stuff is different, but it's like, you know, they got, they got, you know, to live a life after that. And like John Punch had to serve the state of Virginia. And like some people call him like the first slave kind of, but it's, I say all that to say, you know, since 1619, we've been experiencing this and Juneteenth is supposed to be a highlight where everyone is free and well, black people are free. But then after that, you know, reconstruction happened. And it's a lot of stuff that happened where people are forgetting about it. And by Juneteenth becoming a federal holiday, it's kind of whitewashing it because it's like, Amazon's like putting up the Pan-African flag and they're just like cheering like, yay, we did something. But it's like, pay your workers, you know? Like we're working with um, the Bessemer uh, 6,000 and a few trying to help them unionize their thing in Bessemer, Alabama, uh, because, you know, people are getting written up for going to the bathroom, you know, it's like, come on, y'all. Um, so it's one of those, and those are like people of color and Black people and like our low-wage workers, and we need to really understand the big picture of like our place, and that's also why, because like you even said, Sierra, like changing the narrator helps you see yourself and other stories that you don't necessarily see. And that's where we need to get to. Um, yeah. yeah, I really appreciate that point. And uh, really the need for us to understand our history of revolutionary struggle in the United States and remembering that Juneteenth is a result of revolutionary struggle, although Major Gordon Granger uh, was the one to deliver General Order Number Three, that you know officially ended the Civil War and the system of racial chattel slavery. It was because of the leadership of those who were most oppressed, the leadership of enslaved black workers, the leadership of formerly enslaved black workers and poor whites as well. And so Juneteenth wasn't just a representation of the ending of exploitation and oppression, but I really think the beginning, what could have been, uh, what for a moment had been in uh, during Reconstruction 
that the United States was most closest to a true democracy. Uh, it was the moment that not only did uh, public, free public education be accessible to uh, formerly enslaved black workers and their children, but also to poor whites as well. Voter suffrage was, uh, uh, was uh, allowed uh, or fought for and won and reconstruction, not just for formerly enslaved black men, but also for poor white men as well. I mean, there's just so many instances in uh, the, the history that is forgotten or manipulated that is reconstruction following Juneteenth that we really, we really need to explore and explore it not just for history's sake, but for us to actually glean the lessons from the incredible leadership, uh, the incredible uh, organizers of the movement to end slavery and the abolitionist movement, uh, and you know the leaders that came out of uh, that struggle. And so let's go ahead, take a break. Thank you so much, Danica and Zilla. This is such an incredible conversation. To all of our listeners, you are listening to Code Pink Radio, coming to you through Pacifica Radio's WPFW in Washington, D.C., and WBAI in New York City. I wanted to share with you all this poem. It's called Haiku and Tonka for Harriet Tubman by Sonia Sanchez. One, picture a woman riding thunder on the legs of slavery. Two, picture her kissing our spines saying no to the eyes of slavery. Three, picture her rotating the earth into a shape of lives becoming. Four, picture her leaning into the eyes of our birth clouds. Five, picture this woman saying no to the constant yes of slavery. Six, picture a woman jumping rivers, her legs inhaling moons. Seven, picture her ripe with seasons of legs running. Eight, Picture her tasting the secret corners of the woods. Nine, picture her saying, you have within you the strength, the patience, and the passion to reach for the stars to change the world. 10, imagine her words, every great dream begins with a dreamer. 11, Imagine her saying, I freed a thousand slaves, could have freed a thousand more if only they knew they were slaves. 12, imagine her humming. How many days we got before we taste freedom? 13, imagine a woman asking, how many workers for this freedom quilt? 14, picture her saying, a live runaway could do great harm by going back, but a dead runaway could tell no secrets. 15, picture the daylight bringing her to the woods full of birth moons. 16, picture John Brown shaking her hand three times saying, General Tubman, General Tubman, General Tubman. 17, picture her words. There's two things I got a right to death or liberty. 18, 
Picture her saying no to a play called Uncle Tom's Cabin. I am the real thing. 19, picture a black woman who could not read or write trailing freedom's refrains. 20, picture her face turning southward walking down a southern road. 21, picture this woman bound by freedom, tasting a people's preserved breath. 22, picture this woman of royalty wearing a crown of morning air. 23, picture her walking, running, reviving a country's breath. 24, picture black voices leaving behind lost tongues. Thank you so much again. That was a haiku and tonka for Harriet Tubman by Sonia Sanchez. Welcome back. And for those who are just tuning in, my name is Sierra Taylor. I'm the director of Code Pink's Cultural Strategy. You are listening to Code Pink Radio presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. For those of you who are just tuning in, we are joined by organizers Danica Katovich, coordinator of the Peace Collective and the Middle East team with Code Pink, and Zilla Wesley of the Cairo Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice as we discuss the legacy of Juneteenth, radical reconstruction, and the future of struggle in the United States and beyond. Uh, I wanted to kick us off. I, I know I keep harping about uh, the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for a moral revival. And I really want to get into this idea of moral fusion and the path ahead for organizers in struggle, particularly in the United States within the belly of the beast, and what it means to be in true solidarity with one another here in the US and for the poor, dispossessed, and low-wage workers around the world. So uh, we'll have Reverend Barber just take it away. In 2022, we're gonna have an in-person, mass, poor people, low-wage worker assembly, National Moral March on Washington. And at that assembly, poor and low-wealth people gonna talk, not people talking for them. Poor and low-wealth people are gonna tell their stories and lay out the plans and the agenda and the budget. And guess what? We did a study with EPI. You can get the study where it says Economic Policy Institute, a moral, a moral um, agenda is also an economically sound agenda. And this is what it found. It would take $750 million over five years to implement automatic voter registration to make our democracy more secure. And this is just one one thousand of $750 billion to the Pentagon. If we cut 300, if we, if we, we could raise over $330 billion into the economy if we paid right now $15 uh, $15 living wage. We could raise $886 billion in estimated annual revenue from fair taxes on the wealth. If we invest $1 in the early childhood education, society would gain $7 to reduce poverty. Yes, we've had some good things in the, in the last bill, but they're temporary. Even the measures around child, uh, child income tax credit, all that stuff needs to be permanent and more. And if we don't do anything on climate change, it's going to cost us $3.3 trillion a year. 
But if we do something, $200 billion investment per year in clean energy transition would begin to address climate change and create 2.7 million new jobs. And guess finally what they tell us, what the special rapporteur for poverty at the UN told us and what economists tell us and what Joseph Stiglitz has told us and Jeffrey Sachs and so many other people is the issue is not scarcity. That's the lie, the lie of scarcity. The issue is not a scarcity of idea, that's the lie. The issue is the scarcity of moral consciousness. Otto Schwammer said, we got a problem in our economic system, it's called conscious, consciousness and conscience. It's a scarcity of conscience and a scarcity of movement that brings together all five of these issues interlocking and then raises up the people impacted by them with moral leaders. And that's why we have to do this and nothing would be more tragic than for us to stop now. Oh, we can do this. We can do it, but we've got to believe this is our moment to do it. And I close with this. I've, I've been wrestling a lot this year with why am I still alive? I know I've been around COVID. I know I've seen one family in my church. They lost 12 members. One member of the Poor People's Campaign, 18. She's one of our leaders lost 25 members of family in a 30 mile radius. Why am I still here? I'm not better than anybody else. I don't love God more than anybody else. I'm not more faithful. I'm not less sinless. I have my own struggles. Why? And one night it dawned on me that the issue is not why am I still here? But the issue is what do you do with still being here? Because the truth of the matter of any of us are six minutes from death. Any of us lose breath for six minutes, it's over. And the question is, what do you do with your six minutes, your six days, your six hours, your six years, or your 60 years? And what I've decided is, you know, in the past, we got a history in this country of people not giving up on this democracy. And every generation has its Edmund Pettus Bridge. Every generation has to face some injustice. And you know, when we look back, it was always moral fusion coalition. Slavery thought it had the last word. But when Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass hooked up with white evangelicals like William Lord Garrison and Harriet Beecher Stowe, they brought abolition into being. Jim Crow looked like it had the last word, but when a fusion coalition included people like Dr. King and Rosa Parks and white folk like James Reeb and Viola Woosa and gay people like Bayard Rustin, they were able to tear Jim Crow down. You know, the women's suffrage movement was Sojourner Truth and Mother Jones. When we look at the union movement, we look at A. Philip Randolph and we look at all the other white and black union, union labor leaders that came together. We look at the civil rights movement. We look at apartheid. It was Nelson Mandela. It was Winnie Mandela. It was Bozak, but it was also white Africanists that decided they had to join together in every moment of history. God has always had being bring people together. And he's always brought the rejected together. There's a great scripture in the Psalm, Psalm 118, it says the stone that the builders rejected can become the chief cornerstone. And there's the time that because all of us have experienced some rejection, whether it's the rejection because of our sexuality or our poverty or our race or our class or our kind or our religion. But when the rejected come together and we recognize that we don't, we don't, that whatever we have, whether it's six more minutes or six more days or 60 years, if we come together, there really are more of us than there are of them. In fact, if we come together right, we'll get some of them to repent and come on over here and join humanity and join really caring about one another and loving one another. But what we have to decide is nothing would be more tragic than for us to stop at this point. 
Nothing would be more tragic than to say, well, Trump is gone, that's it. Nothing would be more tragic for us to say if we can just get back to pre the pandemic. No, we must say normalcy never again. Nothing would be more tragic than for us to turn back now. And guess what? If Even if we don't fix it all, I'd rather die trying. I'd rather join up trying than live. And on the epitaph of my stone, it read, they gave up. They committed the tragedy of giving up. My brothers and sisters, we can have change and impact. We can repair the breaches. We can, we must, we will. This is our time. God bless you. I really appreciate this piece uh, as a part of a speech that Reverend Barber uh, gave at the, I believe the collection, Collective Action Summit. And I feel like it speaks so much to the celebration of Juneteenth and why it has to be not just a federal holiday, uh, which I think is incredible. And, and it was a long fought struggle for that to happen, but it should be recognized by all people who are in struggle. It should be recognized as a part of revolutionary U.S. history and that it's not just a celebration for Black people living in the United States, but a celebration of the possibility of liberation around the world. And so really just wanting to take time as we, as we close up to just talk about solidarity today and what it looks like. I really appreciated uh, you, Zilla, before talking about the need for moral fusion, organizing, and being able to bring together different sections of the poor, the dispossessed, the low-wage workers, all of those who are exploited, uh, to see our common humanity and how our liberation is bound up with one another. And um, uh, could you tell us just more about why you feel moral fusion is so important and how have you seen it practiced uh, today? Well, I think moral fusion is super important because, you know, we're not living on this planet alone, you know. We are, I mean, like you just even said it, we need to see the humanity in each other, the struggle in each other, the um, understanding of people's journeys, no matter what they look like. And um, yeah, because even like Juneteenth, like I'm happy, yeah, it's great, it's a federal holiday, but let's also like pass critical race theory in some of these places. So it can go hand in hand and like, it wasn't in vain, you know, so it doesn't lose its meaning. Like, um, you know, what I'm about to say is gonna sound a little spicy, but like MLK Day is like a day where people, you know, just go volunteer and get stuff for cheap, you know? And like, that's not the legacy that needs to happen. But how I see the fusion movement now is people, are trying to like understand what's happening with um, the struggle in Palestine, like and connecting it to oppression here in the United States. Like I've seen that, or and even like union struggles in one place, union struggles in another. Um, you know the pipeline issues that we're having on like both sides of the United States. People are coming together in those movements because even next week on the twenty third, 
we have our people from West Virginia and Kentucky coming up here to um, work in solidarity with the DC committee so we can all mobilize around there to, you know, uh, McConnell and um, Mansion and like really like highlight them, you know, and just, you know, talk about what's happening because like in reality, we're all meant to agitate and we're all meant to just be with each other and really like we rise together. Um, we, we rise together. If we don't rise together, then we all fall together. Cause like we're on this one planet, <laughs> like, you know, yeah. I, you know, the one people have an escape plan, but the rest of us will sit and be sitting here looking at each other like, Oh, okay. so what do we do next? Scratching heads and stuff. Um, so we just really just need to like, I don't sound like, but like vibe with each other and understand where each other's coming from. That doesn't mean we also have to disagree and we have to like hold hands and sing kumbaya and stuff, but we just have to like, I see the light in you, you see the light in me, let's grow together. So we can all just even have the basics because like, you know, it's that saying for the American dream is pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Most people don't even have boots. Okay. <laughs> Or even if they have a boot, they don't have like the shoestrings. Um, shoestrings. So it's one of those things that's like, you know, 140 million poor to almost one one financial emergency away from, you know, um, Being economic on the street. Ruin. Those aren't. Yeah, you miss a paycheck, you're out on the street. Yeah. And like those aren't all black people, you know? So it's like, come on y'all let's think about this like we're all in this together and um I mean I believe it and that's why I'm so happy to be a part of the fusion movement is that like people's stories and struggles are real and we need to start honoring that because and it's and even I know we have a new person in office and people are like oh it's everything's good now but in reality things are about to get a lot worse before they get better and we need to like understand and love each other for that because you know how how they treat the least of these shows how the country treats, you know, how the country is, you know? Yep. So, like, let's treat our least of these like they're the best of these, you know? So. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a really good point. And I've definitely just been thinking about how we, uh, how we're taking on these issues that, like you said, there's 140 million poor people that were living in the United States prior to the pandemic. It's projected to be 150 million people um, post the pandemic. We're up against abortion bans, voter suppression, uh, the eviction moratoriums are set to end uh, at the end of this month. And there's a lot of questions that need answering about the future, not only of this country, but of all people and what we value. And you mentioned Palestine. I wanted to bring you in, Danica, because, you know, this last period, we've seen the most demonstrations, the largest demonstrations for solidarity with Palestine in the United States history. Can you, I mean, this is momentous uh, and unprecedented in many ways. And yet, uh, even, I believe it was this week, they just started bombing Gaza again. So could you just talk a little bit about 
what you've seen in terms of solidarity for Palestine, what connections are being made, and how do we really continue the struggle for Palestinian liberation, which is, you know, all of our liberation is dependent upon. Yeah. Um, so I was reflecting on like Juneteenth and in, I think when, whenever I think about revolutionary movements around the world, it's always like a resistance to some sort of unsustainable ideology and practice, like whether it's extraction of labor, the destruction of humanity and lives, wherever it may be. And I think in the United States, um, you know, I work with a lot of young people who are kind of um, coming of age in a time where, you know, climate change is very like, we have to think very long term. I'm, I'm 21. I work with a lot of like high schoolers. We have to think very, very long term about what our future is going to look like. And so when we think of unsustainability, it's always like people can realize capitalism first as an unsustainable ideology. And then when you keep drawing the connections between like who is destroying us, what is destroying us, who's killing us, et cetera, you can see capitalism, you can see um, imperialism. Um, and then when you hear from Palestinians and you hear the stories of the Nakba and um, 1967, um, Zionism becomes a very obviously unsustainable ideology that is hinged on the destruction of Palestinian lives. And so when, when young people are thinking of the answers or anyone's thinking of the answers when first confronted, it's always it like, what's a sustainable way? It's always land back, land back in Palestine, land back in North America. Um, so I think Zionism is being talked about more it's more um, upfront and kind of addressing settler colonialism. Um, you have to look at what is sustainable, what is not sustainable. And the destruction of indigenous lives and, and people in Palestine will never, ever, ever be a sustainable way to live in the world. Um, any, any ideology hinged on the destruction and the oppression of people will never be the way to move forward and to survive together in this on this earth. Um, like in Chicago, we had 25,000 people. Uh, I think it was the third protest um, uh, for Palestine in the, in the span of two weeks. That was amazing. 25,000 people. Um, so, you know, it, it's been it's been really um, uplifting to see how people are looking at it now and kind of breaking through the discourse that Zionism really sort of controls in the United States. Yeah, Kristen, can I, can I, oh, sorry. Yeah, go on, go on, go on, go on. Yeah, no, I mean, because, and I think that's the thing, because it's extremist views, because even how, like, some, like, evangelical churches are even, like, like, supporting what's happening over there and like the killing of people and like Jesus wouldn't even like, no, like, is this the Jesus that you read about in the Bible? Like, no, it is not. Um, so I just say like the extreme like religion is really like doing murder colonization in the name of like a religious being is like part of our problem and the structure that we really seriously need to take down because like 
that's why like the church is slowly dying a little bit and like other stuff that like this is not necessarily what this show's about but I just wanted to say like I I just want to thank like this for this conversation this really gave me life because we have so much to do and so many parallels of just like everyone's experience that we just need to yeah just keep rocking it because like like you said here in the beginning like Juneteenth is a celebration in the beginning so we need to and how the ideal of what people thought this country could be you know like and we can start living into that you know I'm really into manifestation let's let's manifest and agitate to this beautiful jewel that we know America could be and this world could be because like we have generations that want to live and thrive and just exist with like the bare minimum and like we can do that so like let's just live into that thank you so much Zola uh like I said I think you know the code pink we are definitely in support of the poor people's campaign a national call for a more revival we are one of the national partners and we just feel like it we have to look at these issues is interlocking, like you're talking about the moral devastation, Danica, you mentioned the environmental devastation with, you know, the evils that Reverend Dr. King outlined of systemic racism, of poverty and extreme militarism. And so that's why uh, Code Pink is asking for everyone to call on your congressional representative to join representatives Barbara Lee, and Pramila Jayapal to support the Third Reconstruction Act. Thank you so much, Zilla and Danica, for joining this incredible conversation today. It is so important that we remember Juneteenth for the ending of slavery and the end of the Civil War and to mark the beginning of what is going to be and has been a very protracted struggle for liberation of all people everywhere. Code Pink is asking you to call on your congressional representative to join Representative Barbara Lee and Representative Pramila Jayapal to support the Third Reconstruction Act, fully addressing poverty and low wages from the bottom up. This bill calls on Congress to cut the military budget by at least 10% and provide for a just transition for workers in militarized industry. Two, it would end the forever wars, repealing existing authorizations for the use of military force and restore Congress's war powers, including over limited uses of force such as airstrikes and drone attacks. And then it will also recognize the three pillars of foreign policy, diplomacy, development and defense and pursue diplomacy over war including reconsidering forward military deployments, instituting a nuclear no first use commitment and moving towards nuclear disarmament and curtailing the use of broad economic sanctions that create mass suffering. Please 
log on to our website, codepink.org backslash third reconstruction to sign your name on the petition to call for the third reconstruction act. And be sure to contact your representative for them to support what an incredible act that this would be to put life and love and peace above property, above profit for everyone. Thank you for joining us. Be safe this weekend. You think they're foes? They're in business together. Daddy Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before. Been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say code war. We say code pink. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say code war. We say code pink. Go pink for freedom. Go pink for peace. Go pink to hunger. Our phones and the places we meet, they curtail our speech, our movement.